We have today on our show a very important role model is the first Ghanaian politician to contest for a seat in the U.S. Congress. He's a law school graduate who decided to work as a kindergarten teacher in Oklahoma. As a teacher, he's received the Best Teacher Award after just two years of teaching. He's also served as the founding principal of the Greenwood Leadership Academy, which is a partnership school with the Met Cares Foundation and Tulsa Public School. He's the first Black congressional nominee from Oklahoma Congressional District 1. He's the youngest Democratic congressional nominee in the state of Oklahoma, and overall the first Ghanaian to win a nomination for Congress in the United States. Please join me to welcome Mr. Kojo Asimwa Caesar on our show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad you decided to come onto our show. To begin with, tell us a bit about your childhood, where you're born, about your family and upbringing. Uh, thank you. Um, I am a husband. Um, me and my wife, Onika, uh, met in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We've been married for four years now. Um, and so that's something I'm very proud of. And she brings a lot of joy and meaning to my life. Um, I'm also a new dad. We had our first child, um, a daughter by the name of Odessa Eden, um, on April 10th of this year. Um, so, you know, the joy keeps pouring in, um, and I'm just excited to be a girl dad. Um, and then I'm a I'm a son of um, immigrants who came to the United States from Ghana. Um, my mom was born in Accra and grew up there, and came to the United States in pursuit of the American dream, right? And that that uh, sacrifice of leaving behind family and friends and familial settings to come to a strange land in search of a better life for herself and her eventual kids has really shaped my journey and my values and my story. Uh, and and so, so, so I'm excited to kind of talk about, you know, that journey and how that has brought me to this place of, running for Congress and trying to make a difference. So you've mentioned your wife, Anika, and I've actually read in one of your social media posts that you usually introduce yourself to people as Anika's husband. I find that shows how much you care about her. So I wanted to know why you introduce yourself that way. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, for me, I mean, the, the credit goes to her. I think one of the things that has really changed my life and been such a source of growth as being married to, you know, a strong black woman who is, you know, confident and has a strong sense of self. Um, and so the, the better husband I become, the better person I become, the better leader I become. It's a, it's a partnership and um, we're all trying to make each other better. Yeah, since you've mentioned that she's always by your side and is your partner and is your personal cheerleader, can you tell us what her first reaction was when you first decided to run for Congress? Yeah, no, she's been she's been so supportive of me. So um, for me, it wasn't even a right. It wasn't a, a, a thing. It was like you know, she's just been supportive of me and my journey and my success and me following my purpose um, and doing what I believe God has put in my heart to do. And I've tried to be the same for her. So. It wasn't even a question. I mean, she's always told me that she wants me to be um, the best that I can be and do what God has called me to be. So, so yeah, it's great to have a supportive, you know, spouse. Anika sounds like a great person. I'm glad to hear she's been supportive this entire journey. It's awesome. I think you guys will get along. Um, I hope you guys are able to meet one day. Yeah, I hope we are too. As I've mentioned earlier, 
We've found out that you're a law school graduate, but you work as a kindergarten teacher. Sounds really interesting. Can you tell me how you ended up from the law school to the kindergarten classroom? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I talked about my parents' journey and this whole notion of the American dream. Growing up in the States, my mom always told me, yeah, Kojo, you know, you have to go to school, you have to work hard, you have to study because you're fortunate enough to be in America. And in America, there's, it's the land of opportunity, you know, and um, don't squander your education. If you learn, you can become anything you want to be. Um, so this notion of the American dream was stamped into me. Um, and as I went through my schooling and, you know, got the chance to go to college and be the first in my family to graduate from college at the, you know, great privilege to be able to go to law school, um, I, I was experiencing some success in my life, but I also saw along that journey that that opportunity that my mom was talking about was not really available to all of us. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, for instance, in college, I was part of a community service organization that um, mentored at-risk youth in the schools surrounding our, our college and saw schools that were underfunded, saw high schoolers that were reading on a second or third grade reading level, right? um, saw communities that didn't have grocery stores, um, and saw how families were being ripped apart um, and, you know, fathers being unfairly and unjustly incarcerated and removed from their kids' lives. And so, um, so yeah, so I, I came to have this sense of, you know, on the one hand, I'm experiencing some success with this American dream, but on the other hand, I realized that American dream is not available to everybody. And so, what am I doing to ensure that that dream is accessible to all folks, right? Because I can't say I'm truly successful and that I am a product of the American dream if it's not really true, right, for everybody else. And so that was a huge motivating factor for me um, after graduating law school to decide, let me actually um, seek to serve um, and use the same thing that I believe I was able to use to achieve my dreams um, to help others achieve theirs. And that was education. So I would say, for me, education was the escalator to the American dream. So I wanted to use education as that same escalator for others to be able to achieve their dream. And what better way than to do that through becoming a teacher and teaching kindergarten, right? Getting our kids when they're the most youngest um, and the most impressionable and we can make the biggest difference, right? Um, in shaping their journey forward. So that's what drove that decision. What caught my eye is that you mentioned earlier that their dad's being unfairly incarcerated. And I've actually read an open letter that you wish to send to your dad in jail. I find that it's sad that you grew up without a dad and it's sad that there are many other kids out there who've grown up without a dad. And I want to know how you personally dealt growing up without your dad. Yeah. Um, thank you for reading that letter and for, you know, doing your research. Um, I appreciate that. My dad, yeah, growing up without my dad, I think I, I kind of took it for granted at first. And I think it was a coping mechanism and, you know, my mom gave me her Bible. Um, she left the States when I was 14 years old because she had unfortunately fallen ill. And the only thing she had to really leave me was her Bible. And she told me to read it. And um, I started reading it. And um, I came to see God as my heavenly father. And in a sense, used that positive notion to replace my sense of not having an earthly father. 
So whenever people would ask me this question, I would say, oh, I don't need my father because I have my heavenly father. God is my heavenly father. All right. Um, but clearly it had an impact on me um, and I was longing for that relationship with my father. And um, so I sought him out, actually, after graduating college at the age of 22. I took a trip back to Ghana for, you know, the sole purpose of really trying to find my dad and build that relationship and connect with him. And, um, and I was able to do that. And I got to meet him. Uh, we had a great conversation. I The message I sent to him was that, hey, like, it's okay. Like, you were not there, but you not being there caused me to grow up fast, to be more independent, to be more mature, right? And by God's grace, I've been able to make it and be successful. So I want to move forward and not look backwards, right? Um, and... Yeah, and it was tough. It was tough for us to build a relationship because I think he felt he felt the shame of not having been in my life and, you know, I had found success without him. But what was interesting for me was what happened after I met him. After I met him, I literally felt this burden and weight off of my shoulder. Like this, I was carrying this weight around, this monkey on my back that I didn't realize was there, you know? And after I met him, that weight was just lifted. I was like, wow. Um, and then I remember returning to the States and I would have dreams. And it would be as if there was this tape recorder playing in my mind and it was bringing up all these images that I'd seen growing up of other kids with their dads, right? Or maybe I was walking to my college dorm and I would see a kid and their father throwing around a frisbee and in the moment I didn't really think about it but somehow it had registered right in my subconscious and now that I've met my dad all those images were coming back so so let me see that clearly it was an important you know thing and an important board in my life and so I'm glad I got to meet him and at least you know build that relationship and ask the questions that I wanted to ask um, and feel at peace um, with that and, and it's motivated me to be a present father in my daughter's life, right? To ensure that she doesn't necessarily have to deal with that same monkey on her back, right? Going up. That's really inspirational. I'm glad you got to share this with our listeners. Many might not know what to do with the space not having a dad has created. But you just mentioned you read the Bible and that you have a heavenly father. And again, that's really inspirational. My next question has to do with what I mentioned earlier when I was introducing you. We know that Oklahoma is a historically red state, and most would think with your native African backgrounds, it'd be better to pursue your political career in a blue state. Why Oklahoma? <laughs> Good question. You know, um, I say Oklahoma really chose me rather than the other way around, right? When I graduated from law school, and I decided I wanted to become a teacher. And I found this program called Teach for America. It's like a domestic Peace Corps program that sends um, folks who've just graduated into urban school districts around the country to teach and help close the opportunity gap. Right? And um, I was so passionate about joining that program and becoming a teacher that I said, I want you to send me to wherever the need is highest, right? Um, I'm willing to go. And so they sent me to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, and, and I understood why they sent me here once I got here. Because once I got here, I came to find out that we are 49th in the nation in 
education funding. And that since 2009, we had we lead the nation in cuts to our education budget. Right, uh, and in, in the past six years, we've lost 30,000 teachers to the profession because we don't pay them enough. We don't treat them with the respect that you know they rightfully deserve. Um, when I got here, we had 32 emergency certified teachers. These are teachers who are not certified to teach, but yet still we give them certificates to be in the classroom because we're losing our certified teachers. Well, this past year, it went from, you know, we've gone from 32 to over 3,000, right, in the span of just seven short years. Um, so, so yeah, so it was, Oklahoma is the place that really needed teachers, um, and and then I came here, and so, and then I was also placed in North Tulsa, which is um, an African American community, um, historically known as Black Wall Street, because in the early 1900s it was the most prosperous African American community in the nation. Um, it's a community called Greenwood, um, and unfortunately, in 1921, it was burned down to the ground over the course of two days by white supremacists who were jealous and envious of black success right and so here i am teaching quite literally the descendants right of this great legacy with this tragic twist um and and so yeah so i mean that's that's how i found myself here and i found purpose being connected to that story and that legacy and wanting to reclaim that legacy right um and and turn that tragedy into triumph once again so that that's how i ended up in oklahoma and that's the mission that i'm still on That's a great answer, and I did not expect that at all. As I said earlier, education isn't really paid a lot of attention, and I think we should be paying it more attention. As you've shown us, you're very vocal about conversations surrounding diversity and racial injustices and inequalities in our society. Even though we've had conversations about these sort of things since forever, we still see an extreme level of inequality in our society especially among minorities in the United States. As an aspiring congressional man, I wonder what you're going to do to address these issues. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, and it's it's a topic that we're all grappling with, especially in this time, right? Where there's, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement um, gaining traction and a lot of um, folks thinking about these issues of race relations and racial tensions in cities across our country. You know, for me, when I was thinking about crafting my platform um, as a candidate for elected office, uh, I went back and read our founding documents, right? the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, trying to understand and, you know, frame what what this social contract meant, right, and what form of government we had. And, you know, we have this representative democracy, and we have a government of the people, by the people, for the people. So you're running to be an elected representative of the people, you have to ask yourself the question, what do the people want? Right. And and the answer that I came up with was the same answer that um, Barbara Jordan, she was the first African-American woman to win congressional seat in the South. She won in Texas. And she said, the people want an America as good as it's promised. Right? Um, because when you read our documents, it's like you walk away with this sense of, high ideals and the promise of America and the promises that America has made to its citizens. Um, but those promises were not real when they were written. Those high ideals, right, were not true when they were penned. 
Um, but I'm thankful that they were written down at all because it means that every generation gets a chance to make them more true, right? To build a more perfect union as our constitution states. Um, and, and so my platform is based on what are the things we need to do to build an America as good as it's promised. And for me as an Oklahoman, to um, build an Oklahoma that works for all of us, right? And, and that's what we're, when we're talking about social injustice and inequities, we're saying that this country is not working for all of us, right? The, our states are not working for all of us. Our laws are not working for all of us. And yet, um, in our founding documents, it says that all men are created equal. They should have added women. Um, and, and that we are endowed with these unalienable rights, right? To life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So your skin color shouldn't matter. The, the, your family name shouldn't matter. How much money you have shouldn't matter. Whether you own property shouldn't matter, right? Um, we all should have a chance to be able to pursue opportunity, fulfill our potential. Um, and so, so that's what I'm trying to do, right? Um, is to really, um, you know, when it comes to issues like education, right, those are directly tied. So, you know, slaves were not allowed to read. Right? They weren't allowed to educate themselves because their masters realized that if you allow them to read, in a sense, they're going to demand their freedom. Right? They're going to become more free. Um, so we're still dealing with that today. We have to, you know, uh, we have to invest in our education. We have to pay our teachers because they're the number one variable to our student success. Right? We also have to deal with issues like health care. Right? Um, and ensuring, you know, in in Oklahoma, we are second in the nation in the percentage of people who don't have access to health care. My mom, when she got sick pursuing her American dream, she spent, you know, four months in the hospital, racked up a whole lot of bills because she couldn't afford health care. Um, and then she went bankrupt. And her story is not unique. In America, the num- number one cause for bankruptcy is the inability to pay medical bills, right? Um, things like economic security, right? We have a minimum wage that is $7.25. Uh, the, the parents of the kids that I was teaching, a lot of times, they were having to work two jobs, sometimes three jobs, just to put food on the table. When I would say, hey, um, you know, Miss Johnson, I need you to read to little Johnny um, so you can reinforce what we're learning um, in the classroom at home, you know, they would do it, but it was tough because, you know, I'm having to work two jobs. I'm having to, you know, do the graveyard shift sometimes. Um, and and also, you know, so all we're saying is we should pay people a living wage. In the wealthiest nation on earth, you shouldn't have to work two jobs just to survive, right? So let's just raise that minimum wage to $15, right? Um, so those kinds of things. And then criminal justice, right? In Oklahoma, we lead the nation in the rate of incarceration of men and women. Right, so we're not educating our young people, and then on the back end, we're incarcerating them. Right, that's not justice. Right, um, and and you know we've used something like marijuana as an excuse to fill our prisons with black and brown bodies. All right. Meanwhile, it's legal in one way or the, the other in forty-four states. Right. Um, so, so these are the things we're talking about. They're very common sense, and they're glaringly obvious if you look right um, and our leaders have made decisions to get us to this state of affairs and so our leaders can actually make different decisions right to get us out of this and build a more equitable society 
in a country that is as good as the promise and states that work for all of us. Yeah, that was a lot. And I really appreciate you for saying all these things that need to be heard. It's a great goal. I wish you well and all the strength you need to lead the conversation. Um, yeah, I'm yeah. glad you've decided to address these situations and these issues. My next question has to pertain pertains with if you could go back, like rewind time, would there ever be a decision you've made that you'd want to change? Ooh, that's a great question. You know, my initial answer, I, I'm, I'm going to think about it as I'm talking through it. My initial answer is going to be no, right? Because I think all things work together for the good, right? Uh, and I truly do believe that. And even maybe mistakes I've made, um, I've been able to learn from that and have used those to help me become a better person, right? Um, but what would I change? You know, what I would change, I think two things. The, the times when I've most felt um, silly, there were a lot of times in college, I remember, I was an independent student, I was on my own, right? My dad was in my life. My mom had gotten sick and returned back to Ghana. So I was on my own. And there were a lot of tough obstacles that I had to overcome. And, you know, I would pray. I would read my Bible and I would pray. But then I would also worry. Right? I would also worry and I would be stressed out, you know. And, like, God would come through every time. He would come through every time. And afterwards, I would feel silly. I was like, man, like, I prayed, but I worried and I didn't really trust God, you know. And so I would tell myself, told you, don't worry, right? Don't worry. Everything is going to be all right. Everything is going to turn out okay. Even if you can't see it and it seems as if you're just down and out, that um, will come through. And so I regret all those times where I'll pray, but then worry and stress out and doubt God in a sense, right? Um, yeah. And, and then also I would change all those times when I didn't believe in myself, right? When I let self-doubt creep in because maybe I thought I wasn't good enough. Maybe because, you know, I was... You know, I didn't have a father in my life or I was African-American. I was born, you know, uh, my parents are from Africa, right? Or, you know, this whole notion that maybe I'm, I don't quite measure up, right? Because of my skin color or the family I was born into or, right, the, the amount of money we have or don't have, right? And so you doubt yourself. You don't take certain risks because of that. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, Anytime you make decisions based on that kind of insecurity and inadequacy, it's the wrong decision, right? You have to believe in yourself um, and believe that you are capable of anything that is in your heart. And it's in your heart for a reason, right? And God put it there because you are more than capable of achieving and accomplishing it, right? So I'm glad you have faith in God. And you've given such good advice that if you're insecure, any decisions you make will reflect those insecurities. Instead, you should trust yourself and make decisions based on that trust of yourself. <laughs> so, if you don't have any decisions you'd like to go back and change, I'm curious, do you have any times where you just wanted to quit or give up pursuing a goal? Oh, man. Um, yeah, many, many, many times. Um, let's see what... <laughs> You know, there was, yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot of different instances. Let me try to give you some specifics. Let's say, um, I mean, being a teacher was tough, 
right? Being a teacher in an urban school district when you didn't go to school to become a teacher, or your first year teacher, and and you know you have certain biases and certain um, blind spots, right? Um, and you enter into the classroom, and I like to say that the first year as a teacher, you're walking through a dark room searching for the light switch, right? Um, and, and it's tough, and a lot of your assumptions are challenged, you know, and, and you, you have kids who come into your classroom, and you're trying to reach them, and some days it just seems like nothing is working, um, and you're not able to reach them, right? Um, and you get frustrated. And then you um, you also come to just see your your inadequacy, in a sense, to meet the moment, right? Your, your need for growth, but realizing that you're not there yet. Um, and so, yeah, so like there are those moments where you're like, I feel like I, I suck at this, you know, and maybe I should quit. And maybe I'm doing my kids a disservice, right? Because they would benefit from somebody else being in this classroom than me right now. Um, so so there are those those challenges, right, that, that come. Even running in this campaign, I, I announced in November of last year. Uh, and then come January, I was quite frankly depressed. Right. Because, you know, I had a lot of voices in my ear telling me what to do and who to be and what to say and what not to say and right who to talk to and who to suck up to and all that. And I became very frustrated. All right. And I felt like um, I was being stifled and I couldn't truly be myself. And I lost purpose. Like I, I would ask myself when I woke up in the morning, why am I really doing this? Right. What am I doing this for? And and I I. For a little bit, I wanted to quit, you know, um, but I had to come back to, okay, why are you really doing this? Right? And what is the change that you really seek? Right? And um, and do you have the courage to actually be yourself, your genuine, authentic self, irrespective of who is telling you what you should do or how you should do it? Right? So, so I made that decision and it's made all the difference in January. And I said, you know what? I don't care, quite frankly, if I lose being myself. I would rather lose being myself than to win being what somebody else wants me to be. And when I made that decision, I think we actually experienced, you know, more success and put ourselves in a position to actually experience success, right, than the other way around, right, so. Again, that's great advice, that you always come back to it in the end. You're doing a great thing, and you have so many wonderful reasons behind it. As you said, the why is always important. In the end, you come back to the why of why you're doing something. Yes, yeah, definitely. Speaking of why, the why of our podcast is to share the success story of true role models of African descent. We want to motivate upcoming youth to chart a similar path and work to impact our communities. Could you tell us who your role model is and why? Yeah, I have three actually, and they've been there consistently, I think, throughout my whole journey. Uh, first and foremost is Michael Jordan. You know, I was a kid, I think I was like six or seven years old and living in Ghana at the time when I first was introduced to Michael Jordan through these tapes and VCR, you know, uh, tapes of him um, playing basketball. And it was just so inspiring, you know, um, and he seemed to be the epitome of greatness. All right, and just being the best at your craft, you know. Um, and I've heard a quote that says, Michael Jordan plays basketball better than anyone does anything else. 
right? And so he's he epitomizes greatness so much so that when you become great in your field, they say you're the Michael Jordan of journalism or you're the Michael Jordan of podcasts, right? Mm-hmm. Or you're the Michael Jordan of, you know, doctors. Um, and so, yeah, so that was my first kind of, that was my childhood hero. I wanted to, no matter what I chose to do, I wanted to be the best at it or, you know, at the very least apply myself, right? And be disciplined and be dedicated to, you know, doing it well, right? And this spirit of excellence. So I, I got that and was inspired by Michael Jordan with that. When I was in college, a friend of mine gave me a book my freshman year, and it was called Understanding Your Potential. And it was written by uh, this motivational speaker called Miles Monroe, right, who's from the Bahamas. And I read that book and it was life-changing um, because he, he talked about the seed principle. And he basically said, we're all like seeds. We come into this world as seeds and we have immense potential, right? And if you have a seed, that seed actually contains in it a whole forest, right? Because you can plant that seed, you can water it, make sure it gets sunlight, cultivate it, um, and it grows into a tree <laughs> that bears fruit, right? And then that fruit has seed in it. And you can take those seeds, you can plant them, and you know, the process goes over and over. Before you know, you have a whole forest, right? And then what you can do with that forest is unlimited, right? You can cut down the trees, you can build furniture, you can build homes, all these different things. Birds can come and perch on the trees. So I was just, it was just awesome. And then I started reading all his books and he was just so motivational. He became my spiritual advisor without me ever meeting him, right? And my kind of leadership mentor just through his books. So that's another thing that I want to say to your listeners is that you may not have, you know, role models directly in your life, but there are a whole lot of people who've been on, you know, journeys similar to the one that you want to travel and they've written about it. You know, I'm sitting um, in a room with books behind me, right? And so you can like go to the library, check out a book and read those books. And it's as if you were having a conversation with the author and you were learning from them. You can ask questions and you can think and reflect on the things they're talking about. So Miles Monroe is kind of like that second you know, role model for me. And then the, the third and last one um, out of the three is um, Nelson Mandela, right? Um, I realized that, you know, for me, you know, basketball may have been Michael Jordan's thing, but my thing was going to be leadership, right? And for me, one of the best leaders of all time was Nelson Mandela, right? Um, somebody who was a person of character and high moral integrity and had a cause for which he was living uh, and was willing to die for it if necessary and, you know, was fighting for something greater than himself. He wanted a better world for his people, right? He wanted them to be treated equally um, and and was willing to go to prison for not just one year or five years, but for 27 years, right? Um, and then came out of prison without any bitterness, came out and wanted to unite his country um, and realize that it wasn't just the oppressed that needed to be redeemed and healed, but also the oppressor needed to be redeemed and healed um, and brought the country together. Um, and, and so, yeah, so he's the example that I have as um, a true leader and the kind of leadership that we need, the selfless leadership right, that we need in our times. And so those, those are three of my role models. Now that you've mentioned Nelson Mandela, 
Everyone knows about the many sacrifices he made, the years he stayed in jail. So I was wondering if you were willing to make the same sacrifices he did. Well, you know, that is the aspiration. Obviously, nobody wants to go to jail. You know, obviously, nobody wants to die. You know, but another great man, you know, Martin Luther King, is quoted as, as having said that, you know, you, you're not, you don't really begin living until you found a cause for which to die, right? Um, so not that you want to die, but you found something that is so meaningful, that you're so passionate about, that you're willing to sacrifice it all, right? And, you know, I, I didn't quite understand that until, quite frankly, I became a father, right? And becoming a father, you're, you're just, your whole world just shifts because now there's this little human that just... It's as if you have, you know, your heart walking outside your body, you know, mm -hmm. and you will do anything for this little human, um, even die if necessary, if it comes to that. So you come to really understand that notion of, yeah, there is something that is so important to me, so precious to me that I'm willing to die for it. Right. Um, and, and in Hamilton, there's a quote, if you've yeah. seen Hamilton on Broadway, yeah. you know, I think um, George Washington's character said to um Alexander Hamilton, you know, son, dying is easy, living is, living is harder, right? So, so yeah, so I think perhaps maybe it gets to a place where it's easier to just say I'm willing to die for something. But are you willing to live for something? Are you willing to live for the ideals that you believe in, right? Um, and I, I like to think that I'm on that path to making those kinds of decisions and sacrifices. And, you know, one of those is graduating law school, right? And deciding, you know, instead of going and trying to earn a whole lot of money, my law degree, let me go and become a kindergarten teacher in a state that is 49th in teacher pay, right? And make, you know, $30,000 a year. But I have this call that I'm working for, right? That I'm willing to live for, I'm willing to sacrifice for, right? Um, and I hope and I aspire to be that kind of leader moving forward um, and in my leadership journey. This is a really great conversation that we've had, and I'm glad I got to talk to you. Do you have anything more you want to say or anything about your campaign? Well, I want to say one, just thank you so much. Um, like I said, I'm just so impressed with you. I was impressed before the interview. I'm even more so after the interview. Um, your, your research and your interest and your curiosity um, and, and your questions you asked were brilliant um, you have transitioned from one question to the other awesome um, so one I just want to encourage you to keep doing this this is amazing um, you're brilliant um, and I'm very proud I'm very proud to um, know you and you have to have reached out um, please do not hesitate to reach out moving forward um, any way that I can help you be successful I am uh, more than willing to and same applies for your audience. Um, my email is kojo, K-O-J-O, at kojoforcongress.com. So you can reach me there directly. And then for folks who want to find out more about our campaign, they can go to our website, kojoforcongress.com, and learn more about our campaign and you know how they can get involved. Um, and yeah, so that, that, that's it from me. And I, I really appreciate this time. I'm glad you came to my interview, even though you had so many others coming up. I'd like to thank you so much. I wish you luck on the upcoming elections. I hope you win. And I hope you get to spend great quality time with your family.
Thank you once again for coming. 